They always say, trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because, like, yes, good credit. So let's, like, do try to do that and, like, making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Picture it. A doula named Robin pops up on your Instagram Explore page. She wears soft linens. She makes organic oatmeal and shares parenting tips. You're into it. So you check out her profile. On her page, she pairs hashtags like glow up with white lives matter. Oh, she's sponsored by a company called My Patriot Supply. Oh my God. She's anti-vax, anti-trans, and anti-feminist. Robin is a far right influencer. And the fact that you didn't immediately notice, that's intentional, honey. Welcome to the show, Evian Leidig, who is a Marie Sklauska Curry postdoctoral fellow at Tilburg University. Now, get this for a resume, you guys. It's freaking major. She's affiliated with the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology in London, and the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague. She's joining us today to talk about her new book, The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influencers and Online Radicalization, published by Columbia University Press. Evian, how are you? I'm fabulous. How are you today? I am thriving. I just feel like I'm giving you my best, like, investigative journalism, like, adjacent person, mostly because you did all the work and all the research, but I'm just going to learn about it from you, which is major. But, like, we need to talk about this Robin lady. Who is she? And when did this happen? Is it Mark Zuckerberg's fault? I mean, just because he's recently muscly doesn't mean that he has permission to radicalize all these people. Robin is a treat. I will say I loved writing about her. Basically, she's a far-right crunchy mama. Have you heard about crunchy mamas before? Yeah, I mean, there there are moms who are really into like the holistic healthcare, organic living, sort of like homesteading, and she's really into that health and wellness scene. Um, She's living in British Columbia in Canada. And yeah, she's really into making organic foods. So I mean, not just organic cookies, I mean, like vegan, gluten free, non GMO cookies. I mean, so she's also really into like the cottage core aesthetic, really into like the bohemian vibes. So like on her Instagram page, you can see like the the reusable like diapers that she uses for her kids, really into like health and wellness, supplements, tonics. She's also training to be a doula and a midwife. 
Is she a real person? She is. I mean, she's such an interesting influencer because in many ways she kind of like LARPs that she's like living life on the prairie, even though she's like totally urban and like has lived like all over the world. My good friend and colleague Kat Tibaldi, she calls women like Robin granola Nazis because they're just like super into pushing this like wellness lifestyle. And she's also really religious. So she's like converted to Orthodox Christianity. And so she uses religion a lot uh, as a way to sort of justify her views. Scary. Okay, so I had this yoga teacher. I always loved her. She was amazing. I actually did her hair. Then I was minding my own business this one day. And my FYP page on Instagram brought up for some reason this like Trump page. And it said... Like, my friend was, like, the first person that liked all the things on there. And I was like, oh, my God, how is my friend? And then I realized that she was, like, this, like, hardcore right-wing, like, yoga lady. And it turns out that, like, in the last few years, there's been, like, this huge influx of, like, right-wing yoga ladies in yoga. It is a whole thing. And I do think that historically, like... Obviously, patriarchy is the problem, but there has oftentimes been women who have been instrumental in holding up that patriarchal control by, like, aligning themselves with it. And this is, like, giving me some of that. So you situate these women within, like, the far right. So, like, how do you define the far right in your work? Is that, like, even further right of, like, a Laura Ingram or, like, a Candace Owens or, like, a Megan Kelly? Yeah, I would say it's even more extreme politically. When I talk about the far right in my work, without going into too technical details, I go into like the ideology. So, you know, those are things like uh, being an extreme nationalist or being a nativist or believing in like authoritarian law and order. But then I also go into like a really rich history of looking at different organizations. And, and that could be things like political parties, which is much more common in Europe, but also like movements, intellectuals, ideologues, looking at different subcultures and, and online communities. What's really characteristic of the far right today in particular is their anti-Islam and their anti-gender. And that is something that tends to unite the far right across the world, sort of like irrespective of if you're looking in the U.S. Or, or Europe or Brazil, for example. What? What? I think I know the anti-gender part. Why are they anti-Islam? It's mostly about positioning Islam as a threat to Western societies. And this particularly linked to the notion of migration so that they, they say that Muslim migrants are coming to replace white populations within the U.S. and Europe. So it's definitely linked to that kind of conspiracy around population replacement. And they also say that Islam oppresses women uh, without really like acknowledging that there's a pretty vibrant and diverse history of, of Islam across the world. But it's ironic that they say that, and yet they believe in this far-right ideology, which is really patriarchal and, and can be quite submissive of women. Yeah, and like dehumanizes women in so many ways and says that like they shouldn't be working because they're not like cut out for what's like very like yeah. interest. It like fights itself. Yeah. So some of it's just like plainly xenophobic. What other things are, what other like misinformation and disinformation? Obviously a lot of anti-trans rhetoric. Yeah, so it's great replacement stuff, Islamophobic discourse, anti-vax, anti-COVID conspiracy theories about like the government pushing biopolitical control and sometimes through things like the food supply for example so they they believe that like big agriculture is like pumping hormones and chemicals and into like the food supply to control your reproductive abilities also like anti-big pharma discourse that's like they're putting ingredients into birth control pills that's like infiltrating into the water supply like some of these things are so conspiratorial so what are some of the other women that you profile? Yeah, I mean, so some of them have been pretty well known within the so-called alt-right. So this is like back during Trump's time. So there's Brittany Zellner, who is known by her name, her maiden name, Brittany Pettibone. And she's married to a leader of the Austrian branch of the Identitarian Movement, which is this pan-European youth protest movement. And so like she's really big into going to rallies, into anti-vax protests, anti-lockdown protests. 
Also, someone named Lauren Southern, who was a really popular figure for a while, and she makes documentaries around the world trying to sort of like expose the truth. And I mean, there's a few others I detail in the book. Most of them live in, in the US and in Canada. But I also feature some women that live in Europe as well and actually show like the, the connections that they have as this sort of transnational sisterhood. Figures like Thais Descouffon, who lives living in France, and then Aifa Flaringrook, so she is a Dutch influencer. And honestly, I wish that I had written about her more in the book, just in terms of like her background. So she started her political activism working for the Forum for Democracy Party, which is a far right political party in the Netherlands. And she really rose to prominence by giving this speech against feminism in the party. So that really like made her a rising star. She got into this romantic scandal because she was dating the leader of the party at the time, Terry Baudet. And so that kind of caused like a massive political scandal because they have like a massive age difference. <laughs> then she left the Netherlands, moved to Sweden and became a spokesperson for the Sweden Democrats, which is a party with roots in neo-Nazism. So she was like a spokesperson for their YouTube channel. She then was dating at that time a French politician for a far-right political party in France, which some people might know is the previous leader was Marine Le Pen, the yes. French National Rally Party. So she was dating him at the time. Then at the start of the COVID pandemic, she moved back to the Netherlands. She has a master's degree in law and was working at a law firm to push back against government mandates on vaccinations and lockdowns. Here's a picture of her with Tucker Carlson on the left. Yes. Yeah, so she's really, like, she used to be a pretty regular commentator on, on Tucker's show. There she is speaking for the Spanish far-right political party in the recent elections. Yeah, there she is at uh, CPAC Hungary, meeting Viktor Orban, the, the prime minister there. There she is with Jordan Peterson. Now she's just really well known for being this political commentator on lots of channels across the world, but Tucker Carlson was most prominent. And she's engaged now to Will Witts of PragerU, which is this conservative student activist group in, in the U.S. So she goes to the U.S. a lot, actually, to do like speeches and talks and stuff. So what do these women have in common, like online and offline? Like what's their, what's their thing? I mean, so the ones that I do research on, they tend to be like young millennial women. So I would say like a lot of them are young mothers as well. And actually that's when their content was shifting to things like motherhood and parenting and, and health. They all have middle-class backgrounds, right? And I think this is something that we tend to forget when it comes to far-right actors is like they can be really well-articulate. They can be well-educated. They can be middle-class, right? And, and all these women share these traits in, in common. And they've often talked about like their stories about being red-pilled. Red pill is a term within the far right to indicate like your radicalization journey. And so these women will talk about like going to college and entering like corporate life, trying to climb that, that ladder, living in like urban areas and socializing with friends and colleagues. And then there's usually a moment in time in which they describe feeling deeply deeply unhappy and, and depressed with their life situation. And so they blame feminism for that. And they say that feminism like is unnaturally pushing women uh, into the workplace. And, and so this kind of like starts to go into their spiral of their radicalization. Interesting. Because it's almost giving like girl version of incel, you know, like blaming feminism for like the things that were going wrong in their lives. Like, like, how does the far right appeal to those type of women or like to these women? And like, what happens? Like their followers are just like, yes, I want to like have babies and serve my husband and protect like traditional family values with no vaccines. Yeah, some are into that. I think for these women in particular, though, they really feel this sense of empowerment and agency as being kind of like the de facto leaders or being the most visible women within the far right, at least for these influencers they really enjoy the visibility that they get in, in the movement, right? But also, on the other hand, the far right needs them. I mean, the far right needs women in order to succeed as a movement. And so, you know, these women see an opportunity to be spokespersons. And then they, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think these influencers just love the attention as well. 
Well, because attention and validation, like, feels good. Like, totally. I also think that it feels good for people to, like, assign someone as, like, a threat or evil or whatever. Like, we just see that play out through history so much. And I think it's interesting that, like, I think that great replacement theory is, like, yeah, that it's same thing, different day. Well, the way the way I like to think about the far right is it's like pouring old wine into new bottles, right? Like the the ideas don't really change, but it's the messaging and the way that messaging is framed, which is new and, and can be quite refreshing for the audiences. Yeah, especially with gender. I feel like there's been like a really huge push to be like the turf and like anti-trans movement seems really invigorated across all conservative fronts. I saw something this week that said that like, there's like 1.6 million trans Americans over the age of 13 right now. And I was like, isn't there like 330 million Americans? I mean, if you look at your Apple news, like so much of the news is like anti-trans rhetoric in the headlines. I think what the far right does is it it uses transphobia as an exploitation tool because they know that for mainstream society, it's about people being uneducated and, and not being aware of how to have these types of conversations. And so they really play off of those fears and anxieties. So, I mean, that's definitely something that's much more recent when it comes to the far right today in terms of like how it can be really successful in, in spreading its ideology to mainstream public. So how do, like, the women of the far right that, you know, like, the most prominent ones, like, how do they tend to interact and, like, relate to, like, the other big, like, you know, like, men of the alt-right? Like, how do they see, like, Andrew Tate? Wouldn't they, like, think he's, like, a piece of shit because he's so anti-woman? Or do they think that, like, do they really get into the whole, like, ooh, we want an alpha male? Like, are they into that? Oh, yeah. They want that trad alpha male for sure. They, you know, I mean, some of them are are married to men in the far right and like some leaders, for example. But I think one thing to bear in mind is that not all of them followed a man into the movement. Right. Like some of them really did have these pre-existing views. For many of the women I researched, they described their fathers as sources of inspiration for their political activism. And their fathers were not necessarily in the far right, but they were conservative leaning. Right. And so they they felt that their their fathers would support them in ushering in their, their far right political activism. In addition, a lot of these women had described first watching male YouTubers and, and feeling then like empowered to want to create content themselves because they felt like there was a, a place for them to be able to offer their commentary. And a lot of them also describe like being inspired by Jordan Peterson, which really goes down a rabbit hole in terms of you know views about gender roles and, and norms. Who's Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson is an academic who is a psychologist by training, and he's kind of become this intellectual darling of the far right. He really promotes this idea of like individual responsibility. He has a lot of young male followers. And, you know, he's most famous for this phrase, like, just go clean your room, as in like, just go and like, take responsibility for yourself. And so this type of sort of self-help guidance has been closely intertwined with like gendered logics about like what men and women should do for like a quote functioning society. Mm. Yeah. But, but, but indeed, I mean, I think on the other hand though, like these women have also received a lot of flack and criticism from other men in the movement who are like, why are you, why are you talking, you know, just go back to the kitchen and, and bake your cookies, you know? So they do receive harassment from other men in the movement. Right. So I think, it's not a uniform response, but I definitely see a lot more like adoration from male followers. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but 
We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash, whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle. Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. So what drew you to like wanting to research those people? Because I know for me, like, I see Fox News, like, on my news app because, like, I want to read, like, a little bit of what, like, the other side is saying. Like, I want to be, like, a little aware. But sometimes when the headlines are so intense, like, I just can't even expose myself to the whole thing, you know? So it's, like, question 1A is, what gives you the strength to in the wherewithal to even research these people? Are you shitting your pants about the future? And then 1B is, where are these people? Where 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 are they getting the most attention? Is it the gram? Is it TikTok? Where is it? What, what's happening? Is it Mastodon? Don't tell me it's Mastodon, Evian. Oh, no. I think that lasted like 12 minutes. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I got over it. Yeah. You heard it here okay. first. Yeah. So one step at a time. I mean, so I have already been researching the far right for several years, but the thing is I had seen these women and I really wanted to debunk stereotypes of what most people think the far right looks like, right? Because when people think of the far right, it's probably these like angry young men, you know, maybe skinheads. And I wanted to show that like women play such an important role here. And at the same time, there was also a lot of like media coverage or like public conversation about like male YouTubers of like of the far right and not really these women, even though again, they were playing such an important role. But I think what was most interesting to me was that unlike the men, on YouTube, like these women were discussing dating, relationships, and, and friendships. You know, it wasn't just about the political commentary or like hot takes reacting to current events. And they, they do do that content, right? But it was really interesting to me to see how these women were presenting themselves as like more holistic on different platforms, as more like human in ways that, that could be pretty relatable. So I just feel like there was a story here that had to be told. Yeah, it's like come for the health and wellness, but stay for the justified like bigotry or whatever like yeah yeah but also like why were they talking about dating and like why were they talking about like making friends you know like it can make them really relatable to audiences but also it really helps with their branding right and so I will yeah I think we can get more into that because I think that was sort of related to your second question yeah so you refer to these women as influencers and I mean I feel like because a lot of them have a lot of followers don't they some of them do have significant followings. Like Aifa, who I showed you earlier, like she has like 180,000 Instagram yeah, that's, followers. I mean, yeah. I, when I had 180K, I was like, watch out, honey. I'm coming for you, girl. So I, yeah, that's a lot. Especially like all on your own, you know? I feel like that's kind of major. So what platforms are they generally using? Is it Instagram? Because I feel like every once in a while, I see some weird shit on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, it's mainly Instagram uh, and, and YouTube. I mean, most started off being pretty active on YouTube around like 2016, like doing commentary about like the US election. But then a lot of them shifted more towards Instagram to make majority of their content. But I do think what's really important with these influencers is the visual focus in terms of like how reliant they are on such visual platforms like Instagram and YouTube, right? Because it's all about the self-image that they're trying to project. But I mean, they use these platforms for different purposes, right? So like, yeah, they're going to use YouTube mostly for like political commentary, but like Instagram is where you capture like the everyday banal snapshots, you know, like it's, it's about like leveraging different audiences on these different platforms. And they're so adept at doing that. 
Are they getting some good paid advertising stuff? Yes, they are. And I think we're, we'll talk about that a bit later because there is so much to unpack in terms of their sponsors and, and advertising revenue and stuff. Let's talk about it now. Because, I mean, to me, it's always like follow the money, you know? Okay, so, I mean, some of these companies are like explicitly ideological and some are not. So, like, when we mentioned earlier in the intro about My Patriot Supply, so My Patriot Supply sells like emergency preparedness kits, you know, with like 25 years of freeze dried food and like here's your water filtration kit. So like that's that was a supplier for these women. And I think they they were linking a lot of their discount codes, I think, around the height of like the BLM protest, because they were saying like, you need to be prepared for like an upcoming racial civil war. So like my Patriot Supply will like have your back um, if we go into an apocalypse. Some are like, or even like health and wellness brands that have like an ideological stint to them. It's things like raw beef liver supplements, for example, or it's like immunity tonics that you like can put in, in your in your kids' drink. So, and then sometimes it's skincare, actually. So, like, I think one of these women owns a, a skincare brand. And so, like, you know, these sponsors have like a pretty explicit political message as well. So, I mean, those are the main sponsors. But then they also have more mainstream brands like Lily Silk. Some sponsors, interestingly, I feel like don't really know the audience of these influencers. So for example, one of the influencers who has 85% of male followers on YouTube was like advertising this organic cotton tampon company, which is like, I'm sure that the brand like saw her and thought, okay, this is like our presumed like demographic of her, of her viewers. And they were like, oh, actually like most of her viewers are, are not. Yeah, those are the different types of, of companies that, that do sponsor these women. And then, and I've noticed more and more how they're like linking discount codes and like their Instagram stories and stuff. One of my fundamental questions for like right-wing influencers is, is like, and I'm sure it's a spectrum because most everything is a spectrum, but it's like, is it that they know that they're peddling misinformation and disinformation, but they're enriching themselves off of it? Or is it that they actually believe that the great replacement theory is happening. They actually believe that there is like Jewish space lasers that are going to blow their kids out of the sky with fucking COVID bombs. And then there's going to be drag queens reading graphic novels to the babies once they fall out of the plane. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, do they actually believe these conspiracy theories and threats? And like, do they really, it's like either they really see queer people as threats or they know that we're not and they're just getting rich off of it. And I think knowing that it's, false, but trying to wrench yourself off it is even scarier because it's, in my heart, I just want to think that they don't know any better. And so they just get scared. What do you think? I think it can be both, right? Like you you can be like a true believer in these conspiracy theories and far-right ideas. But by and large, I do think it's mostly them grifting and, and profiting off of the opportunity in order to sell that that ideology and that messaging and be able to do so in ways that are like, you know, you have organic cookies on one hand, and then you have like, you know, anti-trans rhetoric on, on, the, on the other hand, right? Like, I think they know that you have to sort of mix both of those messagings together in order to, to generate that interest from their audiences. But yes, I am a skeptic. And, and I think like, on the one hand, you might have a young, vulnerable woman who's sort of drawn to these ideas within the far right, but it's another to be an influencer and literally profiting off of that for your own brand. Because it's like, that is so true that it's like, it's really like, it's so disarming when you're talking about like cookies or like gardening. Like, I want to see all that content, but then it's like, you slip in or like a getting ready with me, but then you slip in these like xenophobic or anti-immigration, anti-queer, anti, you know, whatever anti-feminist ideas. Is there other ways that they merge like influencer culture with far-right ideas that we haven't spoken about? All the time. I mean, these women, they'll use influencer practices of, of being relatable, of being accessible as seeming to be authentic to their audiences. And like, that is actually like the crux of the story that I'm trying to tell here in the book. I mean, on the one hand, like if you look at Instagram influencer culture in a more traditional sense, it's a highly feminized space. 
I mean, in the traditional sense with like marketing and, and, and corporate relations, right? And these far-right women, they exploit that. They exploit that. So they use like genres and formats like selfies or, or food blogging. They'll use hashtags, you know, like outfit of the day or makeup of the day. And, and like these are strategies that they use in order to seem relatable to their followers and build those personal brands. So, I mean, that is part of the like the influencer side. But on the other hand, they'll use coded language of far-right ideology to mask their content. So like just for an example, like when you mentioned earlier in the intro about glow up, I mean, they use glow up as a metaphor of being radicalized. And so like they take this term, which is about finding self-confidence and one sort of natural, most authentic self over a period of years sometimes, right? And they take that glow up metaphor and then they say like, okay, but this is actually me being radicalized or like this is me sort of deprogramming from, from liberal indoctrination. And like that is so subtle and so insidious and it can be really harmful, right, for somebody who may not be aware of, like, what's going on. And, and, and it can be quite confusing. But this is where they merge, like, influencer culture with, like, far-right ideas. Fuck. Because I actually have... I have people in my life who I really love who I fear have found this type of culture. Like, young little baby girls in my extended family who are, like... I just think there's something really interesting there where like there is a way that it like disarms or seems not as much of a threat. And when like, you know, this woman is talking about like, you know, hammering like those like, you know, flower petals onto like the white sheet she didn't like to turn it into a tablecloth, which I love that craft. But then she's like, you know, starts talking about all this other shit. You're like, oh my God. I mean, the reason why they're so successful is because they're just amplifying mainstream gender norms, right? And taking it to the extreme sometimes right but like that's part of their relatability tactics throughout the book i use this concept called networked intimacy which is this idea that like you seem to be so intimate and accessible to your audiences and you that's something that is so prevalent online with influencers as well so like audiences feel like they intimately know and that they feel like personable with with these women So who is their intended audience and then like their actual audience? I mean, it seems like a lot of young people, no? I think other millennials is the most common demographic. But here's the thing. So when I was doing my research, I assumed that these women would be mostly recruiting other women into the far right. But I actually found that at least on YouTube, not Instagram, but on YouTube, they were recruiting more men into the far right. They had a lot more male viewers. So the thing is, these far-right women influencers are recruiting both men and women. Now, on YouTube, you could say, like, okay, maybe they're just acting as, like, honey traps for the far-right. I did interview one young man who had been radicalized on YouTube who was de-radicalizing. And he basically said, like, oh, I found these women so attractive and I just wanted to be with them and the life that they, like, would, would show and so that sort of like clicked with me, like, okay, maybe these women are just acting as honey traps and, and like what they say draws viewers in. Yeah. But I think on Instagram, they tend to have a lot more women followers. Um, and I think that has to do primarily with the type of content that they're posting, right? Like this is just like a cooking recipe that I'm making for my family. These are my kids just playing, you know, in the garden. And these women have themselves said that they are recruiting both trad casts, so traditional Catholics, like women who had, like, let's say, already a religious traditionalist upbringing. But they're also saying that they're recruiting women in their 30s who are, quote, recovering feminists, is how they like to phrase it. So, like, some of these women, like, they did grow up in religious families, but some of them, like, grew up in really, like, secular, progressive families. And they say, like, I'm a recovering feminist now. Like, this is the true message. And there's a lot of that. There is. There, there is a lot of that. <sighs> Which kind of, to me, shows that, like, maybe they used to have these more, like, liberal, progressive backgrounds. And that might also attribute, like, the, the certain, like, tastes or aesthetics that they have. But, like, and they've carried that over with them, with in, even though they've been, like, radicalized into the far right. I think that's one thing people don't get is, like, people bring their past with them into the present, right? And so, like, yeah, like, 
you know, maybe you're really into like organic cooking or like plant-based cooking, but that's probably because like that was a lifestyle choice that you had before. And like, you just now have far right views. And then now you've just attributed that to like a conspiracy theory. Right. So. And also it finds probably like, if you're feeling like alienated or left out and then you think that there's like this big group that like, if you just espouse these views and you're going to be like accepted and lifted up and like, just find your community, then like, I think it adds like another layer of like, desirability to adopting those views because like everyone wants to feel like loved and accepted or most people do yeah that's right and like the message they'll tell young women is join us and you'll find the sisterhood in in the far right like they tend to reach out to to women who feel like they're isolated like they're lonely who might be really unhappy with like their life situation and they say like just join us and like you'll have this sisterhood and maybe you might find a man in this movement as well so like Mm. that is the messaging that they're trying to sell I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, but I should stop paying for me time with whatever credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offer 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Sign me up. Room upgrades? Yes, please. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. What vision of motherhood and womanhood do these influencers promote? Or what do they say you should aspire to be as a young, right, the conservative family values lady? I mean, like, okay, so as expected, they have like a very traditionalist interpretation of gender norms, right? So women should be homemakers and in charge of like the domestic realm, like cooking, cleaning, child rearing, and, and, you know, fathers should be outside working and be the primary bread, breadwinners. So it's a very like specific nuclear family unit vision. And of course, they see it as their duty to the white race. And so I want to give a great example here. So there's a a YouTube channel that was created by two of the influencers that I studied for my book called Motherland. And they created this YouTube channel when they found out they were both pregnant. And so they discuss on live streams things just like prenatal nutrition or like how to breastfeed or how to, to cloth diaper. They'll invite guests onto their show as well. And like, these are really long live streams. They're like two hours, by the way. And sometimes they'll like stop and like get their kid and like start breastfeeding. And the thing is like, while they're breastfeeding on their live stream, they'll all of a sudden start talking about how they have to save the white race by reproducing babies, right? So it's like, it's it can sometimes just be so explicit, right? But unless you're like been following this live stream for like an hour in, you're not going to hear that. You're just going to be like, oh, this is just a channel about like, parenting and, and motherhood. And so this is the really insidious way that they that they insert their message across. How do minorities, because there are like, obviously like far-right minority members and like there's even like queer far-right people who like seem like, like how do those type of influencers like uh, think of like, a Black conservative or a queer conservative or a Latino conservative when it comes to, like, the connection between, like, white nationalist, you know, far-right people and then just, like, other far-right people? It's a great question. I mean, like, they all like Candace Owens, for example. So I, I, I think as long as they can see individuals on their side and as long as those other individuals, if even if they're not white, still support white supremacy and the structures and institutions of white supremacy, like that's what matters ultimately for creating their utopia of a society. 
all the women I did study are white, except one is is mixed. She is half white, half East Asian. And actually, I'm also half white, half East Asian. So like that was a bit strange for me to like be reading about like her background story and be like, okay, I could have like grown up with this person or like it was it was so bizarre. Of course, like some are, I think, a much more extreme politically, right? So some are like, like they don't see any minorities sort of as being like permitted in, in society. Others, I think, perhaps more strategically are like, well, as long as they're anti-feminist, as long as they're traditional family, that's all that matters for our movement. So I think it can also kind of depend on the influencer that you're looking at. Mm. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like, as long as like, they, even if you are a minority, and you still support like their vision for what like a white nationalist utopia should be like, that's all that matters to them. How do they draw on the popularity of other groups? And just, like, other trends, like, do they just kind of, like, stay, like, current so that they can, like, monopolize off of, like, the person of the moment or, like, trends of the moment to stay current? So what was interesting was, like, over the years that I was doing the research for this book and following these women is that, like, they would find ways to try to stay relevant. So, like, sometimes it was, like, yeah, reacting to, like, election disinformation, right? But, like, other times, like, Robin, who we talked about earlier, like, I noticed her kind of, like, experimenting with different topics in order to stay relevant. So, like, on the one hand, she was starting to push a lot of, like, the QAnon conspiracy stuff. Then she started to get a lot more into, like, showcasing the health and wellness and, like, the anti-COVID back stuff. And now she's really into, like, midwifery and, and home birthing. So I think, like, just like any other influencers, these women are also trying to stay relevant for their audiences. And so I can see that over the course of time, like they're trying to experiment with with different topics to see like, okay, what catches my audience's attention? Because I mean, the truth is like, sometimes audiences get bored, right? They want to move on to like the next celeb. And so these women know that. So they're trying to find ways to continue to stay relevant for their fans. What's the like trad wives? What's that thing? Trad Wives are, um, so it stands for Traditional Wife, and it's this movement that's been booming, particularly among, like, Gen Z women, unfortunately, which is this, like, they're basically trying to LARP this, like, 1950s housewife fantasy self, right? So it's this idea of, like, the wife being a homemaker, her husband goes outside to work, that they live in, like, this suburban white picket fence uh, house, and trad culture has become really popular, especially on TikTok, particularly these young women who like try to show like, this is my life as a homemaker. And like, it's like them in an apron clad kitchen, making cookies or whatever. Now, trad culture kind of developed adjacent to the far right, like it has its own like online aesthetic and community. But what's happened is like some trad wives have crossed over into the far right. And so there is some overlap there sometimes. Like, I would say all far-right women are trad, but not all trad wives are far-right, if that makes sense. Because I bet there's some nice trad wives who are like, you can be queer and, like, I love immigrants and stuff. I just, like, really want to be my little, like, progressive Betty Boop from 1950 or something. Or no? No. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. We need I some mean, progressive ladies to play, like, a really progressive, um, like, Florence Pugh, who is, like, really progressive in that one movie with Harry Styles. Like, don't worry, darling. And, like, not a yeah. dystopia. That wasn't yeah. really it. I mean, this is such a, like, nostalgic myth that these tradwives believe in. And the thing is, like, this was not the reality in the 1950s and the 1960s, right? Like, it was a privilege. Like, the reality was that, like, there was really limited choices for women in employment. And, like, there was a lot of repressed sexuality and domestic abuse that was rampant, right? So, like, but they really loved to LARP, like, this sort of nostalgia of, like, what the 1950s was like. And and they argue that, like, if if we have these traditional gender norms with women at, at home and, and, and men in the workplace, like we will be happier and we will function as a society, but that is a complete myth. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was fucked up as hell back then. And there was all sorts of stuff going on then. Yeah. What the far right does is it exploits this fantasy self of trad wise. And they kind of take it even further with their political messaging towards like this idea of like a white utopia and and a lot of trad and far-right influencers they'll follow each other and like each other's content but I think one of the most interesting things what that trad wise will say is like they'll say it's, it's my individual choice to want to like stay at home and what that does is like it completely neglects the fact that this is actually like a movement 
and it's a community. And like, if it's really a choice, like, why are you propagandizing your, your life to like millions of viewers, right? And so, but they love to use that sort of feminist argument. Like, it's, it's my choice. But it, and it is their choice. I mean, but they're also doing it for like validation community and like finding like a exactly. purpose. Yeah, exactly. No, that's it. And it's like, if it was really just about choice, like, why are you feel so inclined to to sort of make this into like a community into into a movement? And there does certainly seem to be like, this is something I think about a lot, just coming from a very like, not only conservative, but also like very religious upbringing. And I remember like being very young and it just being so normal and like a thing. It's like, you know how they say like, don't talk about like, um, I don't know if they say that's where you're from, but like, it's like, don't talk about like politics or religion at the dinner table. But like any other time, like we were trained to talk about religion. Like we were trained to talk about Jesus. Like, have you, like, did you ask Jesus into your heart? Like, we were meant to, like, because it's like, if you don't convert people, like, they're going to burn in the fiery pits of hell. And you talk about that when you're, like, a little kid. So, like, that was, I mean, for me, like, I, I remember being, like, you know, 9, 10, 11, meeting, like, some lady at the pool and being, like, have you, like, once we were talking about Miss Universe, I'd be, like, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? Like, and that came from, like, I didn't want this nice lady to burn in the pits of hell because I thought that's what happened, you know? Like, is there a desire for these influencers to like, they want other people to get into it too. Like they're trying to get other people into the fold. Like if you live how I live, you're going to be happier and you're going to be more into it. Like when we talk about like a recovering feminist or whatever, it seems like there is a part of that community that's like, be how we're trying to be, which is interesting because I feel like as a queer person, so often that's what the fear is. Like you're trying to turn people queer when in reality, I think we're more of just saying like, if you are queer, like we think that's fun and we think that's cool, but like we're not trying to make you queer. Whereas I feel like there is more of a bend in right wing influence. It's like you should live how we're living because this is the right way. Yeah, there's definitely a superiority complex, and also don't forget that it's a supremacist movement, right? They they inherently believe that they are at the top of the social ladder, so it's you know, it's, it's definitely, they see it as a moral good and they see it as a righteousness that, that everyone has to, to adhere to, but it's like an extremely exclusionary movement, right? Like I mentioned earlier about like minorities, it's uh, at the end of the day, they're fine if minorities support their cause in the short term, but like when, when they get their utopia, like those minorities are not sticking around. Right. So, so what's this utopia you keep talking about? Is that something that they talk about in their content? Oh, no, that was just me sort of saying, like, this is their end goal for society. Like, just as, like, this is sort of what I imagine their their dream for society. To mm, look like. Scare. Yeah. I, I also, I, because you asked about Chadwives, I just wanted to show you one really popular Chadwife account, just so you get a sense about, like, who Chadwives are and what they like to post. I mean, so she is, like, one of the most prominent Chadwives, Mrs. Midwest. And so you can see she's sort of LARPing this like suburban life with like her kids. And she loves to be like ultra feminine and talk about like how wearing a dress a day keeps the blues away. And she's a really interesting figure because like on the face of it, she doesn't seem really political. But then she talks about things like submitting to her husband. And she used to write in these forums about like how you need to be a good wife she actually had one really interesting story when uh, she was in like high school, I think, where she went to like this summer camp and she remember she said that she felt attracted to like another girl at the summer camp, but that she just repressed that because it was like, quote, unnatural, which I found to be like, okay, like, who is this? <laughs> who is this person? But like, as you can see from her Instagram page, it's about like her with her husband and kids, but she's an extremely popular trad wife influencer. Ah. Uh. So pretty. Yeah. Um, it is It is really pretty content, right? And then you're like, oh, actually, this is masking a lot of hate. <laughs> yeah, you, like, hate it. It's so easy oh. to, oh my God. Okay, but wait, so you talk about in the book, or you wrote about the ethical conundrum with this project. Because on the one hand, you're exposing these women, but then on the other hand, you're like publicizing them. Can you break down what that was like for us? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing this book, I was always asking myself, am I platforming these women? for more mainstream audiences. 
And one could argue perhaps that's true, although I have a lot of doubt that if somebody just reads my book, they're going to go and like get radicalized by these women because like these women already have audiences, uh, as I as I showed on their socials, right? They already have like hundreds of thousands of followers. So like they're already well known. So if you already follow these women, like, or if you already know these women, you know, you're, you're already following them. But when I was also working through this to try to see like, okay, like, Am I publicizing them? I'm, what I'm trying to do is expose what these women are doing to legitimize and normalize the far right. So I think at the end of the day, it's so important for people to spot the harms and to see like these are the strategies that these women are doing to make far right ideology seem appealing or to seem normal. And I think at the end of the day, that was much more important than, you know, people continuing to think that the far right are these like, you know, young skinhead guys, right? Like, it's more than that. And actually, it's like, they're really, the women are so important because they are the ones that do make it so much more palatable and feel less, like, of a direct threat. It's like, that's your friend. That's your sister. I'm your friend. Like, you don't got to be scared of me. I'm, like, helping you with cookies and, like, how you're going to stay healthy and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's so subtle and it's so insidious and dangerous, right? Yeah, I mean... Yes. Okay, so what was it like immersing yourself in that world so much? Did you just feel like your soul needed to, like, take a shower? Were you... Did you get any sympathy for them? Did you ever find yourself being like, yeah. Like, because sometimes, like, when I listen to Trump for too long, sometimes I'll be like, I'll be like, yeah. And then I'm like, wait, no. Like, but sometimes they're so convincing when you listen. Like, you really... It is, like, it's confusing. Or it can be. It can be. I can be. I mean, so I I wrote this book over three years. I was following these women for three years and it was totally consuming to follow them. Right. Like I was always getting notifications on my phone and like tracking content at all hours. Right. Because Instagram stories disappears after 24 hours. So I was just like always on top of it, like at nights and weekends on, on my holidays. Like I was just constantly like monitoring their activity. I created a fake profile to follow their accounts of course, I didn't want to use my own profile, but like, uh, so I needed to create a fake profile, but I was also taking photos that from my personal life, my real life and using them on my fake profile, right? So like, I was kind of like blurring the boundary there between like my fake and, and my authentic profile. And at some times, you know, I did find myself relating to these women in like the most unexpected ways. And I think part of it's because like, as I mentioned, like they could have been like my classmates growing up or even maybe my friends growing up in terms of like their backgrounds. We had really similar life trajectories. Like I followed them from when they were like single to like when they got married and they had like their first kid, right? Like I could understand those sort of life events and how like relatable that could be. So sometimes I did have to stop myself and be like, okay, at the end of the day though, these women are still propagandists. Like they're still opportunists that are spewing far-right ideology, like, you need to take a step back and have some distance sometimes. But again, like, I think the ways that they were presenting themselves online to be so relatable also got to me sometimes. And I'm like, I'm someone who's been studying the far-right for several years now, and I can spot the signs of radicalization. But like, when you're using terms like glow up, it kind of catches you off guard. Mm, mm. Mm. Okay. What about like, is anyone ever trying to like limit or report or like suspend these like women's accounts? Not really. No. On the one hand, like we have to ask like, are, are these women actually evading like being banned or are the platforms just not taking action? I think the one exception was around COVID is like when these women started posting a lot of disinformation about the vaccine. That's when I actually started to see their content getting flagged and like we like individual pieces of content. Right. Banned. But that was only with disinformation. Right. And I think like they had been spewing hate on these platforms for so long before then. It was just interesting to see like from the platform's perspective, like you're only targeting these women once they actually are spreading this information about the vaccine specifically. But I mean, these influencers are so good at like using coded language or like manipulation techniques of like text or emojis. So like instead of vax, they'll use like the letter V and then the ax emoji. Or they'll like use like deliberate misspellings of text. Now, just like, just bear in mind, like this isn't necessarily new, right? Like people in like the pro 
and a community or like the eating disorder community, they've already used these types of techniques as ways to like circumvent the flagging of their content. So it's like, this isn't necessarily a new practice, but it's like the way that these women do so, so consistently. And they're still able to spread a lot of like hate speech despite that, right? Because that is against community guidelines to like spread like racist or xenophobic or whatever, or anti-trans on your... Yeah, there's usually community guidelines against hate speech, which are protected characteristics. And so that's things like nationality, sex, gender, religion, age, ability. Like, there's a lot of coded international law characteristics. And so people do violate those hate speech guidelines all all the time, right? It's just about, like, enforcing them. And, like, these women are known. They're not just, like, some anonymous account, you know, that's just, like, posting this stuff. Like, they are well-known public figures with, like, so many followers. And so, like, there's a a good case to be made that they have audiences and networks that, like, once they say something, it can spread, like, like wildfire. Right. And I also think that, like, I have definitely seen queer creators, like, when they start talking about things that are just very political, like, all the time, they get really shadow banned. Like, their content just goes less far. They get less engagement. And I don't necessarily see that on the right. Like, they seem to be getting, like, bigger and bigger. Oh, but they think they're being canceled and censored. That's that's the thing, right? It's about, part of it is, like, we just don't really know, and platforms don't release that information in terms of, like, who actually gets censored it's all about like perception and if if platforms did release that information i think people would be actually like quite shocked in terms of who is actually getting censored but i mean yeah the far right loves to cry victim right like and even if it's anecdotal even if it's like one time that they got like shadow banned i mean they'll just cry wolf uh, and say like our freedom of speech is being impinged upon right i mean is there any tactics that you think could actually like curb their hate speech? I mean, it seems like there's a market for it. I mean, so here's the thing. Like, we have the technical tools to do it on platforms. We just don't use them on on these women. For example, like, one of the influencers I study, her husband has been banned from, like, every platform off the face of this earth. Like, he's been, like, prosecuted in court. I mean, like, he's not allowed to, like, enter, like, countries. And she has, like, not faced a slap on the wrist at all. She has the same, like, views, and she's still, like, part of the same, like, organization as he is. But, like, the way that she frames her content is it's so soft, it's so, like, gentle in its framing that, like, she just knows how to sort of cross that border of, like, what's violating on the platform. And this is a major blind spot when when it comes to, like, regulating these women and, and their activity. I think that there's also a space in terms of using like counter influencers. Like there's a lot of great accounts on TikTok, for example, that like debunk a lot of like far right myths or like debunk a lot of like disinformation terms and conspiracy theories. And there is a space for them, I think, because like they understand how that influencer culture works. They understand like how important it is to engage with audiences. So I think there's a space for that. I just don't think I just don't think we can make it cringe. I mean, I think like sometimes it becomes to be too too cringe if like if like you know governments get involved or something. Like I think we have to like allow them to be independent and like have creative control over the content that they produce. And also like people, academics like myself, I'm I'm I advise and consult tech companies and I tell them like this is what you need to be looking out for, like this is how you need to enforce your policies. So any tips for speaking with family, friends, or like a loved one who follows this type of influencer? Well, I think one really important place to start is about critical thinking to spot the far right's manipulation techniques. So like what I mentioned earlier with the glow up post being used as a way to sort of weaponize their radicalization beliefs. And what I've also noticed is that how important it is to recognize personal grievances, you know, if if maybe someone's feeling like lonely or isolated, but trying to encourage them to understand that finding your authentic self doesn't justify believing in hateful ideology, right? Like there's plenty of people who have grievances who don't turn to the far right. And there's the reason for that is about support. And so when I was listening to some of the radicalization stories of these women on their socials, 
They all talked about at one point after having been radicalized or being radicalized, they were crying like in front of the webcam saying like, I lost my family. I lost my friends. Like no one like supports me or or, or believes in me. And they were using this idea about like finding self-confidence and about finding their authentic self as like a justification for them believing in these far right ideas or believing in this hate. And so if you have like a family or, or, or friend who is susceptible to the messaging of these influencers, I think it's so important to teach them to think critically and just from spot like where they're being manipulated with their grievance. Oh, that's hard though. How do they do that? Like for so if your friend, you know, you're God, I see them like liking some weird shit. They're like like yeah. or they just say something to you that's like super right wing or you see them in their in their Trump hat and they've never really like done that yeah. before. Like yeah. How do you, are you like, are you feeling lonely, Queen? Are you feeling yeah. left out? Or? I mean, definitely ask why. Because, I mean, if they're wearing like a Trump hat for the first time, it's obviously a signal that they're like inviting some attention. But it's about sort of like not accusing them, but just trying to get a better sense of like, but why are you wearing that? Or like, you know, it's really just asking questions. And, and maybe you won't get so far, at least in that first conversation. But I think that intervention step early on is so important before they start getting deeper into the rabbit hole. Yes. Okay, so now what do you think is next for these women of the far right online and beyond? Like, yeah, I mean, they're all of the women who you profiled are still active online Right? Most of them are. Like a couple have like quote retired. Some some actually like left and came back into their activism. And I think it's just so interesting because they really love the attention that they get as being like these celebrities in this online space. Some are a bit less active than they were before, but then others are like rising as stars, right? Like I'm seeing some of them become like the new faces and, and get get new audiences. So yeah, I think most of them are still active. And again, like I said before, like they're not suffering the repercussions of the content that they post online. So like, why would they leave? Do you see it moving further to the right? Do you see these people as becoming more mainstream? Do you think more people are going to be coming? Like who's the next generation of these influencers? Or do you think it just widens from who's already within this generation? So I think a lot of the ideas that these women first promoted back in like 2017 when they were part of the alt-right, I think a lot of those ideas, those fringe ideas have become quite mainstream. I mean, just look at like the Republican Party today and like the discourse about like being anti-woke and like being transphobic. And, and so what I do see next, at least for like influencers within the far right, is I'm seeing a lot of younger women trad wives on TikTok. So like, again, these are the Gen Z women. These are like 18, 19 year olds who are like LARPing this trad wife lifestyle. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that's sort of like what's next when it comes to what's new and interesting for the far right. What are you most concerned about from your research? It's hard to pick one. (laughs) Maybe like... Top three. Or in like a mission statement or like an impact statement. Like, what do you think we need to do? So I think one thing is we as a society need to not have this generational amnesia. So by that, I mean, this is a term that like climate change scientists use to describe like changes over generations in terms of like wildlife. And so I think the same thing needs to apply to understanding the the gains of women's rights, feminist rights and LGBTQ rights and not take those for granted and be educated and aware of those histories and those legacies, right? Because the woman I write about they write books, they went to, to university, they own bank accounts where they get, you know, their, their monetized content sent through. I mean, these are women who have profited from the gains of the women's rights movement. And yet, ironically, they want to go back to the 1950s, right? So like, it's so important to not take for granted. And so I think we as a society need to just be constantly vigilant about protecting and safeguarding those rights and and improving them for the future. Mm. So Evian, what's next for you and your research? What are you like just excited to get into next? 
Yeah. So while I was doing the the research for this book, I was finding ways that these women were circumventing the the flagging of their content. So like I mentioned earlier with like manipulating text or images. So that inspired me to do the work that I'm currently doing now, which is I'm looking at platforms, content moderation policies of far-right content. So at the moment, I'm interviewing tech company employees and the experts they consult on designing and enforcing the policies and then like how those policies get adapted over time. Are you ever scared that these like all right people are going to like come for you? So, I mean, I have been trying to find ways to protect my, my, my safety and also my mental health um, in this space. Right. So the first thing I do is I just drink a lot of wine because that obviously helps. I mean, like, honestly, never underestimate that. Um, no, but also like, you know, having really good social support networks, like my family and friends, my colleagues who just like check in to make sure like how I'm doing, like I'm part of a, a network of other researchers who study the far right. And like, we, we obviously, have chats and we just make sure like if someone's facing harassment that we check in with them because that is so important when you're doing work like this. I also try to create boundaries between like work and personal life, you know, and I think at the end of the day, also just being really open about like challenges to your mental health or even like security issues, like just being open about that is so important. Not to like give you unsolicited advice, but maybe that one account that you started to research those other girls, like let's delete that shit and let's get you a wig or two. Yeah. Let's get you like a little red wig, a little <laughs> blonde wig. You can do like little like fucking, you know, like, we, like maybe her name is like Priscilla or something. Like your new <laughs> alt, right? That. Like, yeah, yeah, like for your like new research, yeah. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it's giving wig, wig vibes. You just got to learn how to like braid your hair so that you can just like make it really flat to your head. So it's not like a lumpy wig. It's like got like a really good transition. So no yeah. one clocks it, you know? Yeah. I think you and I, we can set up a whole scheme here if you want. <laughs> we got to do a wig consult. Yeah. I'm pretty curious. You're so right. We got to do. Yeah. Cause like, I'm just really ready for your like spy diva era. <laughs> That's the next book, right? Going undercover. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Evian, Spy Diva Era is upon us. We're so excited for it. I can't wait. Thank you so much for your time. Evian Leidig, thank you so much for coming on the show and for teaching us all of your research. You've just been incredible. And thanks so much for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousJVN. And can I just say, our social work has been so good. We are just slaying over there. So give us that follow. You can catch us on here every Wednesday and make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough, honey? Either can I. You can subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JVN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Chris McClure, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall. 